You're listening to Matt Walsh On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. So I'm reading a book. Uh, it's called Brothers Karamazov by, by Dostoevsky. And it's a great, well, it might be the best book I've ever read so far. Next to the Bible, aside from Holy Scripture, it might be the best book I've ever read so far. And I'm still very early on. But I came across a passage a few days ago when I was reading it. It jumped out at me. The whole thing jumps out at me. But this in particular, because of how it resonates with our culture. So I want to read this passage to you from the book. And then, uh, and then, and then we'll talk about it. This has become a a book club all of a sudden on the podcast, which it's my podcast. I can do what I want. All right. So this, this is what it says. Don't lie. Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks into his, into his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself. The man who lies to himself can be more easily offended than anyone. You know, it is sometimes very pleasant to take offense, isn't it? A man may know that nobody has insulted him, but that he has invented the insult for himself, has lied and exaggerated to make it picturesque, has caught at a word and made a mountain out of a molehill. He knows that himself, yet he will be the first to take offense and will revel in his resentment till he feels great pleasure in it and so pass to genuine vindictiveness. So there it is. By the way, this was written 130 years ago in Russia, but he pegs first, and I'll start with the second part of this, but he pegs, Dostoevsky does, our overly offended culture, the, the, the pleasure that our culture finds in taking offense at things. And I think very profoundly he gets at how, he gets at, uh, at how taking offense intentionally breeds not only resentment but it breeds a pleasure in that resentment it makes resentment enjoyable cathartic and once it does that it creates vindictiveness and you end up with a vindictive people and i think that this is why it jumped out at me and i thought wow because i think that explains what seems like such a paradox in today's culture and i think about it all the time you know, I'm always trying to figure it out because I find it fascinating. But you find that the, the, the people who are often most easily offended are also the quickest to offend. You'd think a silver lining of having an offended culture, a perpetually offended culture like we do, is that it would also be a very sensitive culture. And we sometimes mistakenly use, because you, you might say, well, it is a sensitive culture. Those sensitive, overly offended, same thing. We sometimes mistakenly use those terms interchangeably. We say that an easily offended person is sensitive, but that's not the case usually. Because, see, a sensitive person, a very sensitive person, someone that you might accurately call sensitive, may be more easily hurt by things, insult, 
because they're sensitive. Um, and they might feel someone's anger towards them or someone's disapproval even more than someone like myself. But they're also hurt on behalf of other people more easily, and they're therefore empathetic, which is part of being sensitive. They tend to be kind, gentle, because they feel very deeply. They feel. I know some people like this, some genuinely sensitive people, and I would never criticize this sensitivity because it's a good thing. I don't have it, as you might know. I can be very hard, I admit. Um, sometimes even numb to, to criticism. I sometimes think, because I, 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 there's so much criticism that I get, and I, we all get criticism. I'm not, I'm not putting myself or saying I'm some sort of martyr. But, and I can't speak for anyone else. All I know is I get a lot of criticism. I do. Just a ton of it every single day. Uh, and if I really wanted to go through it all in my you know, inbox or Facebook messages, tweets or whatever, I'm talking hundreds of insults a day thrown at me and I, and I feel nothing from really any of it anymore I feel I feel and it wasn't really like that in the beginning when I first started to write and I got an audience and there's all this attention and I was getting a lot of feedback on things it was very overwhelming and at first when I you know I remember the first time I wrote something I just got this avalanche of negative feedback from people really personal stuff just saying the most heinous things they could possibly think of and just hundreds of them just this landslide of filth in my direction. And the first time that happened, it did, I wasn't yet numb to it. So I did sort of feel it. I was, I was taken aback, but now I don't feel it at all. And sometimes I think maybe I should because I'm numb. I don't know if it's good to be numb to it. I don't know if it's good to get to the point where anyone can say anything to you and you just don't care at all. I know we we tend to, to think that's the way we ought to be. And that's, that's the way I've become. I don't really know if that's the best way to be, actually. I think that's probably not the best way to be, but that's how I am. Um, but some sensitive people, you know, I know people like that in the sense that they are empathetic, gentle, and compassionate. And that's a fine quality, for sure, a fine quality. But what we find and what Dostoevsky's talking about and the character being referred to or spoken to ex- exemplifies this is that in many cases, the easily offended person, the person who invents reason to be offended, is not kind or sensitive at all. They're not sensitive. They're the exact opposite of sensitive. See, on, on the contrary, he's, he's, th- this sort of person is, is vicious. Vicious. You can't really be sensitive and vicious. Vicious, vengeful, rude. And that's because this person has made a habit of making himself offended and the way that he gets high off of it, that he takes pleasure in it has made him vindictive. And we see that in our culture while taking offense so easily based on nothing. We find that so many in our culture also cause offense, real offense. Uh, so an example would be say, you know, a celebrity or media figure or someone who turns someone into a villain for having an unapproved opinion but then proceeds to produce shows or movies or whatever that are really morally objectionable and disgusting and derogatory towards Christians and conservatives and other groups. So we, we see that. On one hand, our culture, very what we call sensitive, I think inaccurately, but at the same time, very debauched and depraved. And what I talk about all the time is this, this weird 
hedonistic puritanism that I, I, I just, I don't know if there's ever been a combination like this ever before in history where on one hand we have this incredible tolerance for the most disgusting, depraved, vile sort of ideas and, and material content. But on the other hand, there are just there are certain words, certain ideas, certain opinions that if you say them, people around you will break down into tears. So we say that we say that being offended is a choice. I say that anyway, and that's true. But I, I think we need to clarify that it's a choice to turn non-offensive things into offensive things. It's a choice to take a statement that isn't meant in a derogatory way or abusive way and interpret it that way so that you have an excuse to be offended. That's a choice, and it's a bad choice. It's also a choice to take offense. We call it taking offense for a reason. It's like you're, it's like you're reaching out and you're grabbing the offense and you're taking it for yourself. Taking offense. You're, you're reaching into whatever was said and you're extracting on purpose offense. You're clinging on to it, holding it close to yourself, and you're saying, this is mine. It's my offense. I'm offended. And it's a very selfish thing. And I think people around you have every right to, every reason to, to, to respond to say, okay, so? So you're offended. You've taken offense. Good for you. You did that on purpose. So you're offended. You took, you, you took offense to that. Okay. You don't like it. You don't like being offended. You don't like that you've taken offense, supposedly. Okay, well then give back the offense. Give it back. You, you're the one who took it. Drop it. If you don't like it, drop it. Drop the offense. Drop the offense and, and live, with your, live your life. But if you won't, then obviously you like being offended. In which case, I won't try to interfere with that. Because you enjoy being offended. So be offended. Who, who am I to try to take the offense away from you? You want to be offended. So someone who, who does that, you, know, you say something, you use a word, you didn't even mean it in a derogatory way, but they, they take offense to it. They, they take the offense. And they say, I'm offended. You should apologize. And my response is always, why should I apologize? Why, why do you, you don't really want me to apologize, do you? Because you want to have this offense. You took it for a reason. Far be it for me to try to take it back from you by apologizing. I would never do that. would be so rude. You obviously want to revel in this offense that you've, that you've tried so hard to take. So go ahead and do it. I'm not going to apologize. I'm just going to keep walking. And you can have your offense. You're welcome. You're welcome, actually. That's what we should say to, to overly offended people when they get offended. They say, I, I'm offended. We should say, you're welcome. You're, I, I know you live to be offended, so you're welcome. I just gave you. I just, I just fed you. I fed you. I have, I've, I've fertilized you. you. You live off of this, so you're welcome. You're welcome. That's the only appropriate response to someone who has taken offense. Taken offense. I take offense. You're welcome. But on the other hand, on the other hand, I think it's important to point this out because this also gets lost in the discussion, especially when people like myself are going on this rant like I'm going on now about how people are too overly offended. There's another part of this that I think is left out that people like myself, including myself, sometimes leave out. And I think it's important. That is objectionable, abusive things do exist. OK, there are things that are actually offensive that does exist in the world extreme example let's just use an extreme example somebody walks up and slaps your mother in the face slaps your mother not you your mother that's an offensive act it's offensive it's an offensive act 
an offense against your mother and against you. And you would actually be a coward, a wimp, if you just brushed it off like it was nothing. And you just continued along. Didn't even say anything. Just continued along. That's not being the bigger man. And in that sort of situation, someone slaps a guy's mother or does something similar to that, you know, metaphorically. And then a guy says nothing in response and they says, well, I was being the bigger man. No, you weren't. You're being a wimp and you know it. That was not your... It wasn't like you were just... You know, you would have lashed out or you would have stood up, but you, you had to control yourself. No, you're a coward. You're not being the bigger man. You're being a much, much smaller man. You're, in fact, being a smaller man than the man that slapped your mother. Because the only thing worse than slapping someone's mother is not doing anything when someone slaps your mother. There's a lot of offense that we should brush off, but if you're the sort of person who brushes off all forms of bullying and offense even legitimate ones and even ones against other people around you, people that you're supposed to love and protect, you're not tough. You're actually an enormous wuss. A guy who says, oh, you slapped my mom? All right, whatever. That's not a tough guy. That's a wuss. And the reason is because the honor of someone else has been violated. And you should respond to that. But you're not, here's the point. You're not taking offense for yourself. You're not taking it for yourself. It was, it was given to somebody else who you love, and you're responding. You're, 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 you're protecting, you're defending. You're stepping in on behalf of something greater than yourself to right a wrong, to respond to an assault of some kind. We should do that. And, and what's, what's really interesting is that This, again, seems like a paradox, but the people who constantly take offense for themselves, who are constantly personally offended, are often the least likely to respond when an actual offense has been perpetrated beyond themselves, when their mother is slapped or whatever. They're constantly offended for themselves in in, in situations that don't warrant it. But when a situation arises where there is a breach of honor or dignity of some kind, that's when they all of a sudden lose their sensitivities. That's when they all of a sudden are able to brush things off when they couldn't before. Weird how that happens, right? This is why men used to duel, by the way. There was no whining and complaining and I'm offended. It was, you've dishonored my family. You've dishonored me. You've behaved disgracefully. And now I challenge you to a duel, sir, so that we can settle this. Thursday at noon or 6 p.m. or whenever. When did they do duel? In the morning? I'd rather do it in the morning after a cup of coffee. I wouldn't really want to, you know, it'd be hard to, I, I just, I'd, I'd feel like I just want to get out of the way in the morning. And then, and then, you know, that way, if I win the duel, then I can, I can live the rest of my day and feel pretty good about that. And, um, and if I don't win the duel, then I don't have to worry about, you know, the rest of the day because I'll be, I'll be dead. And that was the way that men settled disputes. And I'm not saying it was the best way, but it was probably better than, you know, whining on Twitter about it. It's probably better to have a country where men duel than a country where they, where they, where they send Twitter barbs at each, at each other. I'm not advocating it, okay? I'm just speaking, I'm just speaking uh, metaphorically. I think Donald Trump calls it a truthful hyperbole. But we don't have duels anymore, in any case. Yet... We should still respond when something beyond us, some truth outside of ourselves is attacked. That's not being offended. 
that's well for men i would say it's 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 called being a man chivalrous protective uh another example maybe a more relevant example more likely example when as christians our faith is attacked our god is attacked just one of the many instances of this that comes to mind and this just i mean there there are many many incidents that that you see of our faith being attacked especially in media and hollywood on tv and movies and so on but I remember there was an ep- this just jumps out of me as an example. I remember there was an episode a while ago, a few years ago, of Curb Your Enthusiasm, the uh, HBO alleged comedy with Larry David. And Larry David in, in the episode accidentally, his character does, pees on an image of Christ. And then the dumb Christian characters in the show think that the pee is a tear uh, coming from Christ and they fall down in worship over over it now so this was just these elite leftists in hollywood that said you know what we're gonna pee on christ because you you idiot peons you worship this this fantasy character and so we're gonna piss on him that's what we're gonna do we're gonna piss on jesus christ that's what they said now we shouldn't be offended by this kind of thing in the sense of making it about ourselves but we should be angry Yes, we should be angry. We should be outraged as Christians when our God is defamed. We should be. We should be. There are times to act out in outrage and um, to respond in outrage, to be outraged. And that's one of those times when God is defamed. In fact, that is the best time. That is the time to be outraged. The time. And I'll tell you something. There have, there have been points in history in the Middle Ages, for instance, when there have been legitimate Christian societies, societies that were Christian from top to bottom, and culturally and religiously, in every sense, Christian. And in those societies, you, you, you weren't going to pee on an image of Christ in those societies. It, it wasn't going to happen. And if it did, there were going to be consequences for it. it was, people weren't going to laugh it off, and they weren't just going to yawn. They might have laughed off and yawned at a lot of things. You know, it was a tough time to be alive and be a human being in the Middle Ages. You had to be a tough, you had to be kind of tough to get by. Uh, you, you had to overlook a lot of things, endure a lot of things. But one thing that would not have been endured is, uh, you know, someone peeing on Jesus Christ. That would, that would not have been endured. It just would not have been. That is precisely what caused Jesus to pull out the whip and start flipping tables. This is a, a scene in the Bible that is, that is talked about quite a bit. But I don't know if we ever really stop. I mean, how often do you really stop and think about it, re- reflect on that scene? I mean, think, because there were, there were, Jesus was alive for 33 years on earth in human form, physically. Each book in the Gospels is really short. I, mean, I don't know how many pages exactly. It depends on the size, of the, you know, the size of the pages and so on. But each book is very, very short. I mean, it wouldn't even, each book by itself would uh, qualify probably as, as a sort of a short story if it was if you if you were to buy it if it was sold on its own at the books it's, it's like a short story on its own so there's a lot that happened with jesus and a lot that he did quite a lot almost every almost everything that jesus did and said think about that almost everything that jesus did and said was never recorded or if it was recorded at some point by somebody it was not preserved and included and cataloged in what we know now as the Bible. It wasn't. So almost everything. What that tells us is that 
everything that was included, it was included because it was very important, because it was representative of something. It, was, it gave you an idea. Gave you, it gave you, it not only did it tell you about a specific incident or a, a specific story or a specific action or miracle that Jesus performed, but it was also representative. I, I, I think, I, I would think, I would like to think that even though there are just these few, 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 few stories about Jesus in the, in, in the gospel, we can sort of extrapolate from that and, and get an idea about what sort of man he was when he was on earth in human form. We know he was, we know that Jesus is God, that he's the savior, but I mean, really what, what is, what was he actually like? What was his personality like? And we're not given very many windows into that. We're not given very many answers. And so I can only assume that what we are given is important. And it, that we're, that what we are given is not just, you know, these, these aberrations. So in other words, here's what I'm saying. We're told that when Jesus flipped the tables in the temple, the people were certainly surprised they were taken aback. But you have to wonder, his uh, disciples, his apostles, when they saw that or when they heard about it, how surprised were they really? And I have to believe that they weren't that surprised because they would have thought, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the Lord. That's Christ. That's Jesus. He came across something like that. Of course he would react that way. I have to believe that that's what they would have thought. Of course he would react that way if he came across something like that. Of course he would. That's the Jesus we know. So considering it was such an extreme reaction by our standards, I mean, think about it. He was lashing out violently. I mean, he made a whip out of cords. If he were alive today in human form and did that, he would be arrested for assault and probably five or six other felony charges, right? But why did he do it? Was he being overly offended? Was he an SJW freaking out for no reason? No. He was reacting because his father was being disrespected, dishonored, defamed. And he was reacting. And he was saying, no, no, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. He was angry. And should we not follow his example? Christ turned the other cheek when he was spit upon, but not when his father was spit upon. He did not turn the other cheek for that. And he did not call us to do that. And for us, we recognize that the father and the son are one, you know, members of the mystery of the Trinity. And so we react as Christ did when he or the father are disrespected because they are one. They are one. Christ said, if anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek. But notice the really important word in that. If anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek. You. Now, I didn't say if anyone slaps God, turn the other cheek. If anyone slaps God, turn your back. And he didn't even say if anyone slaps your mother or your wife or your child, turn your back. He didn't say that. He said, if anyone slaps you, so that's the distinction. We should speak up out of a sense of honor and chivalry uh, and devotion when something greater than ourselves, beyond ourselves, is dishonored or attacked. We should speak up because that's our duty. So that's one thing. 
But on the other hand, as our culture, that's not what our culture does. That is not what our culture does at all. That's not the problem with the oversensitive, what we consider oversensitive, overoffended thing in our culture. That's not what it is. The people are always, you know, standing up for each other and for and for things that are holy and righteous and and speaking up because they feel that God or their family has been has been dishonored. That's not what happens. Instead, it's people are very selfish, inward looking, and they're constantly looking for offense for themselves against themselves that they can cling on to and then feel and then and feel better, feel superior and feel vindictive and vengeful with it. And they just revel, they revel in that feeling. That's what happens. And that's what we need to address in this society. And that, and it all hinges, I think, on the first part of that passage that I read, which I also want to focus on because the first part of the passage, I think, uh, talks about the importance of truth. And remember, it says, don't lie. Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself, listens to his own lie, comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love, and in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks into his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself. We're talking about the poisonous power of lies. And we're really, we're, we're, you know, we're surrounded by lies in this culture. So many, so many lies. And it almost makes you feel paranoid after a while because it seems like everyone and everything is always lying to. You turn on the TV, the news media, Hollywood, lies. Listen to the politicians, lies. Go on social media, people are lying. Even if they don't know it, they pass along half-truths tr- half and, and false narratives intentionally or not, and they spread lies. And the way they present themselves, their, their own lives, so much of that is a lie. And I think what we see is that there's, there's very little passion for truth in, in this culture. It seems almost nobody believes in truth for truth's sake. There's no real passion for truth. And this... This is where our problem lies as a society, as a world, as a species. Not only the absence of truth, but the disregard for it. Um, there was a scene this past weekend in a show called The Night Of, which is a miniseries, a murder mystery, crime drama, crime drama a miniseries on HBO. And it's very compelling TV so far, but not for kids. A woman is brutally murdered in the first episode after spending a rather uh, debaucherous evening, drug-fueled evening, with a college kid. And uh, but it's a compelling show. And there's there's a scene between the kid's lawyer and himself when he's in jail uh, f- f- for the crime, which he probably did not commit. And the kid is trying to tell the lawyer that he's innocent, and he says to him, uh, "It's almost a reverse of the you can't handle the truth scene in, in A Few Good Men. It's almost the reverse of that." He, the kid, says to the lawyer, I want to tell you the truth. And the lawyer says, no, you don't. I don't want to be stuck with the truth. I don't want to be stuck with the truth. And the kid says, but you need to know it. And the lawyer responds, no, I need to be flexible. And that's kind of where our culture is. That's where, you know, what our culture says. I don't want to be stuck with the truth, we say. I'd rather be flexible. And and we're such a flexible culture that we practically folded into ourselves, collapsed into ourselves. And, and I feel like a broken record because I always come back to this point. But it's important that what we need in this country is truth. And all of our problems arise from an absence of truth. I, I say this, well, I say it generally because it needs to be said, but also because, you know, recently with all the tragedies happening, like most recently in Baton Rouge on Sunday, and then a few days before that in France, 
immediately we start seeing and hearing all these slogans, all these calls for unity and understanding and togetherness. And we, we know how it goes each time. People change their Facebook or their Twitter avatars to a picture related to the attack. They post memes that say nice things like peace will win or whatever. And the politicians give their condolences and they condemn the attack in no uncertain terms. And there are candlelight visuals and, 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 and very moving light displays. And people like me write articles and make good points about how screwed up the world is. And it's all a topic of conversation for about 18 hours until it's replaced by Donald Trump or a controversy over a celebrity's Instagram post or something. And we repeat it all again in eight or nine days when there's another attack. And that's how it always goes. And personally, I'm, I'm tired of the whole routine. I'm not sure it adds up to much. It all feels kind of hollow after a while. And it certainly doesn't solve the problem. Not that the problem really can be solved completely. But I think the problem is that these things happen and we throw this sugary, sweet, meaningless sentiment at it. All the evil in the world and our solution is to douse it with maple syrup, basically. But that's not the solution. There is no real solution, per se, until Christ returns. But at least there's, you know, there's a way to combat it, to battle it. And the way to do that is to take a stand for truth. Not for unity, specifically, or togetherness, or even kindness, or understanding. We have to fight for truth. And we have to understand that all the evil in the world is in some way rooted in a lie. That's why it's evil. All evil comes from a lie. All evil is dishonest. All evil lacks truth. So one thing we can do is expose the lie. An example, reason I, another reason I thought about this. An example would be the violence against police, the war on police. Um, and that's fueled in large part by, by the false narratives of BLM and the leftist media. But what I've noticed is that if you stand up and fight that narrative, expose it for the fraud that it is, the narrative that, as I talked about in the podcast last week, that cops are out murdering black people you know, in the street, hunting them down. There's an epidemic of racist killings by cops. You know, that's a lie. But if you expose it for the lie that it is, the dangerous lie that it is, even many conservatives will lecture you and they'll say, no, that isn't the answer. Stop being divisive. Stop being divisive. We need to come together. We need to be unified. And my question is, come together around what? For what? Come together just what? To come together? What's the point of that? I can think of many examples where people have come together around the wrong thing and done horrible things because of it. Look at ISIS. Look at Nazi Germany. Look at, look at Lucifer and the fallen angels. Look at, you know, the Spice Girls. Acting in unity is only good if the purpose, the goal is good. But if the purpose is evil, then the unity is evil. And we, we, we would be better off divided. Better off with deep divisions where truth still lives, at least on one side, than a nice and inspiring unity where truth has been banished for the sake of not interfering with the group hug. I just think this is such a good example, the BLM cop violence stuff, because basically people are saying, um, yeah, maybe these are lies. Maybe the lies are getting people killed, but let's not talk about that. Let's ignore that because we want to be united. And I say, no, to hell with unity, to hell with it, to hell with that sort of unity anyway. Look, um, it's the same thing you see with everything else. Christians and conservatives will often say that we need, to, we need to be very meek, very quiet, 
about things like gay marriage, abortion, transgenderism, all the sacred cows, race relations, whatever, because it upsets people and it causes division. But no, no, the, the, the truth itself doesn't cause division. Lies do. People do. You know, people choose division. Jesus said that, that, that he came to bring a sword and he would divide families and divide communities. But what he was really saying there is not, it's not that his intention was to divide, but more that he was coming with, with, with the truth, which is a solid, real thing that cannot be reduced or changed. And some people would flee it. People would choose to divide themselves because of it. And that's what's happening. And you won't solve the division by getting rid of the truth. Because then we're all just going to be divided from the truth. Yes, we'll all be on one side while the truth is on the other. But that's not the kind of unity we want. Notice how unity is referenced in the Bible. Uh, Philippians talks about being of the same mind, the same love, and being fully in, in, in accord with one another. The same mind. In other words, unite around the truth. Don't just unite. Unite around the truth, around the same recognition of the truth. Colossians tells us to be bound together, unified in love. And scripture also makes it clear that truth and love are linked. Our dimensions of a whole are one and the same. So we must be united in love and truth, which is the same. We're told that we're members of the body of Christ, united. But that unity depends on each member of the body, each limb, each organ, doing what it's supposed to do, striving for the same thing. That's the kind of unity we should be reaching for. And because truth has to be at the center of it, uh, must in fact be the goal of it, then we have to start with the truth and we don't unite and then try to inject the truth later because if we unite around lies and then inject the truth later it will explode the unity and we'll be back, we'll be back where we started so we might as well start with unity to be or with truth to begin with not with unity with truth that's what we should be rallying around rallying towards and for and defending defending at all costs and if we do that it won't it won't create a utopia for us uh, in this life, we'll never be living in a perfect world until the end of the world. But there could be a hope for at least some kind of progress. And at the very least, you know, we'll be fighting. We'll be doing something rather than just sitting around and um, patting each other on the back, which is all anyone seems interested in doing anymore. All right, that's going to do it for me. I'll uh, probably talk to you guys in a few days if I keep up this this incredible record-setting pace of doing two podcasts a week but don't don't pressure me okay don't pressure me so i'll talk to you guys then akruche salus godspeed